first guest today to introduce themselves. We're very lucky to have Yuan, who is the policy lead for MSF Access Campaign in the Geneva office. So handing over first to you, Yuan, please, to let people know a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, so my name is Yuan. I work as a senior legal and policy advisor with uh, Kate and uh, Lina in MSF Access Campaign. So now I'm based in Geneva. So my job is involves kind of technical support and analysis and communication with different stakeholders. And then for the patent law and trips waiver issues that we're going to discuss, I'm sort of in dancing with different offices of MSF and with civil society organization in different countries who are following in these issues and some government delegates. That's a kind of quick summary of my job. Thanks, Yuan. And Yuan is slightly also underplaying things. She is also liaising with governments that are directly negotiating at the WTO. So we're very lucky to have her. Also, just so that you know as well, Yuan and I, actually, as it turns out, we're both alumni of the same university, SOAS, which I picked up recently, although we have yet to meet in person. Thank you, Yuan. Okay, then many of you will already know Omanyana, so perhaps she doesn't need an introduction. But for those of you who haven't had a chance to meet her, over to you just to let us know a little bit about what your role is at Section 27 and a little bit what your focus is generally professionally. Great. Thank you, Kate. And hi, everybody. Um, I'm sure there are many comrades who I know. My name is Umunyana. I'm the executive director of Section 27. I have been at Section 27 for 10 years as an attorney, and I have worked on intellectual property and access to medicines. Um, we've done a couple of cases with TAC, um, and we've been working on this campaign together to fix the patent laws for the last 10 years, since 2011. Um, and we've had some success, which we'll talk about later, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and the reason that we're here today is just to have a refresh on some of the issues around patents and access to medicines and prepare for the action that we're having next week, which I look forward to. Thanks. Thanks, Amanyana. We can start with really the most simple is why are we here today? As been alluded to um, already, we are trying to join the dots between what is happening with trade organization and the negotiations that are happening today and tomorrow. In fact, those negotiations are due to be starting right now in Geneva, and many of you will have been following that in the press, but some of you might not even be familiar with what is happening um, with the go too much further. And we then start drawing the dots between the trade and then look down at what's happening domestically. Please to tell our audience, what do we mean by the TRIPS Council? What does that acronym stand for? And could you also then elaborate a little bit exactly on what patents are? Thank you very much, Kate. Yeah, exactly. As we are speaking now, there is a meeting going on in Geneva. So the TRIPS Council, I mean, this organization is quite remote to our normal life, but it actually has... Um, played a quite important role in terms of access to medicines. So World Trade Organization has this um, agreement called Trade-Related Intellectual Property Rights. Uh, they are administrating this uh, agreement. So the TRIPS Council, so in the acronym, TRIPS Council is really um, kind of a council meeting for all uh, World Trade Organization members to talk about the implementation of this uh, global agreement. The problem with this agreement is that, um, you know, for every country, 
who want to join this free trade club internationally, they have to join this agreement. There's no uh, exception. Uh, no, no exception for unless a country are uh, least a developed country, a category, uh, least developed country, they have some exception um, for not implementing, but they have to sign up this agreement. So uh, the agreement, um, Kate, cut me if I'm speaking too long. The agreement uh, asks every country to give a patent to medicines. So they can't, they can't choose not to give patent to medicines, but they can choose how to give it or, you know, on what, which conditions. So I think well, Vienna would know, and that is a struggle for the fixed patent or campaign. But as a, as a minimum obligation, this uh, agreement and this organization says, you know, if you want to join us as a club for free trade, you have to make sure the patent law is open for medicines. Um, that's how the whole problem starts 25 years ago. Thank you, Yuan. Um, Umanyana, if you could just come in to explain particularly what a patent law is here, but also what is the stake here? I mean, we talk about these concepts as, you know, what's happening at the Geneva level. We talk about negotiations. We talk about these legal barriers. But considering what's happening in the pandemic right now in COVID and what we've seen before in HIV, let's spell it out for our listeners about why this is so incredibly important for patents to be waived. So what are they? Why do they matter? So a patent is a, a reward that is given to a company that discovers something that's useful to the world. And it gives that company the ability to have free reign in the market. So there is zero competition. Um, as Yuan has said, the, the main rule of the period of time in which patents are granted is a 20-year period. That's set by the World Trade Organization. Um, so that's what we have to deal with. And then each country would have to set its own laws within its own legal framework about how to implement that, what standards to put in terms of uh, what what can be granted a patent. So um, the main issue here is that our current system um, was never reformed at after the time in which at the WTO, there were discussions about the impact of the patent system on public health. Um, so we kind of ignored that whole conversation, even though the TAC actually was the catalyst for that discussion that happened in Doha um, in 2010 that um, talked about public health and, and patents. Um, so the TAC fought that good fight. We were in, in court um, in the pharmaceutical manufacturer's case in which a whole lot of pharmaceutical companies sued the um, sued Nelson Mandela's uh, government when it tried to change the law. Um, and right now we are trying to change the law and the same tactics are being used. So the intimidation of big pharma um, in relation to what is basically a democratic process of law reform. Um, we saw that rear its ugly head in 2014 during what we called Pharmagate, um, where there were discussions around a new policy that would, again, look at public health and patents. Um, and that, that new policy, um, or it was a draft at the time, was attacked by Big Pharma. 
So we had to push back on that. And we're still having the same fight because whilst we do have a policy, we still, and this is why we're here, um, need to see that policy translated into hard laws that can be enforced and that we can then participate in as activists, as lawyers, um, generic manufacturers would have the ability to oppose patents in a way that doesn't require years and years of litigation. So that's why we're here today. And that's, you know, a short version of where we've come from. Thank you, Manyana. And we're going to go a little bit more to looking at the domestic policy shortly. But also, the pandemic is raging. We are seeing in the world obscene levels of, excuse me for using that word, but I strongly believe this, obscene levels of vaccination, nationalism and hoarding by the same states that are now dropping, uh, I beg your pardon, blocking the waiver at the WTO. So would you both agree that this is not just about understanding a fight and in courts, that lives are literally on the line here, that literally as the COVID pandemic rages um, and we are not getting access to much needed vaccination and other medical tools such as diagnostics and protective equipments and other medicines, like let's just break it down for our audience about why this is so incredibly important. But now, you know, Kate and Rihanna, we made a link with history and uh, actually South Africa is a land of struggle and leadership in the access to medicine movement. And we made a history when the, the same kind of uh, mentality, I would say the mentality and understanding how, you know, access to medicines in, in developing countries should be looked at was still decided and dictated by a small group of countries who hold more power and wealth. Uh, so for the moment, um, we recall, you know, we, we know many, many comrades joined the, the petitions on, on the waiver. And then if we look at this map, it's actually tell us very uh, vividly. Now it shows how history of inequality play out in the pandemic. The countries who are opposing this developing country demand are mostly countries who have more power and wealth, although they are majority uh, minority. So um, that is really the 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 asshole of our uh, our fight. So how how health and medicine should be treated uh, in normal life and in a pandemic? Why you know the big pharma and the rich country don't let go this specific legal protection for private interests, well as uh, you know uh, life and health are at stake. So we may have mentioned the the you know the function of patent really blocking generic uh competition and affected the price. We have you know in, enormous um experience uh with everyone here I think in many countries how generic uh access are so important to manage the affordability and accessibility in developing countries and how the current architecture of patent system is um predominantly um, supporting big industry to get longer, stronger uh, protection. So now it becomes a very complex web internationally and very difficult to break. So in a pandemic situation, South Africa actually, uh, Kate mentioned, um, we had some contact with the Geneva mission here, uh, uh, South Africa government uh, mission in Geneva and India mission. We really appreciate the kind of a leadership and, and, and courages of South Africa in this context because not only because of the historical struggle, but also uh, in the, the overall context 
in the COVID situation, when if we review what happened last in the last year, there was literally no concrete policy action taken by government globally at the global level to say now you know we prioritize life. Majority of the policy choice was relying on companies' willingness, companies' voluntary contribution. So what government can do, especially in in low and middle countries, the the predominant strategy now is like, you know, for low and middle countries, wait there, wait there, we will give you things. It's a charity model. So South Africa is really the country, I mean, in the context of the trips waiver, really stand out and voice out and say we don't want to just passively wait for charity, but because there's a legal options, you know, government can do and we can do things in our own hands. Whereas, you know, working with others, developing country are we have capacity to help ourselves and coordinate with others. So this is really uh, my understanding of how the scenario of the waiver discussion comes in to see that, you know, relying on companies are not kind of trustworthy and then relying on rich countries are not sustainable. So we need additional tool at the international level so that give the government the spaces to manage the, the pandemic access more effectively. So in terms of the access challenges, we have plenty of uh, examples already because now some countries say, oh, you know, there's no IP issues. You don't actually need to worry about IP, just wait. But then since the pandemic, we already see a lot of uh, examples. One example is Remdesivir, uh, you know, one controversial medicine. And the company uh, Gilead, probably, I mean, our uh, HIV AIDS activist comrade will be very familiar with Gilead. They've done a lot, you know, a lot of things in the uh, HIV fields. So they also come up with this uh, remdesivir, which was uh, uh, originally developed for Ebola treatment. So that is a very interesting link here, actually. So remdesivir was trialed for Ebola a few years back and failed. So the, the drug was the publicly funded by a lot of US uh, government agency and so on. So Gilead actually spent literally nothing to develop this drug. They, they used the, the government money and then they used the, even the public uh, laboratory to do development. So the Ebola trial was not successful, but because Gilead was given the right to hold the patents on Remdesivir, in this pandemic, Gilead came back and made themselves a savvier. So basically, uh, Gilead used this uh, once upon time field Ebola drug trying to come back. I mean, of course, we say it, it would be nice, right? If it works, it's saving life, and that's fine. But of course, now the efficacy of remdesivir is in question. But even before that, Gilead already made the choice to say they are not going to do anything different from non-pandemic field. So they just do one to license with a few company. And then, you know, um, they already have a patent widely uh, granted in more than 70 developing countries. And then they didn't include many high burden in middle income countries, such as the Latin American country, Brazil, indoor license. So it's already very vivid how industry are not giving up monopoly in this pandemic. Therefore, we think this waiver proposal is really timely. Thank you. And just to ask you one or two more questions about the waiver. First of all, for our audience today, can you please spell out exactly who is currently blocking the TRIPS waiver? For the moment, there is a small group of very rigorous blockers, let's say, 
US, EU, UK, Canada, Australia, Norway, Japan, Switzerland. So they are really the leading country who are rigorously block this uh, discussion by either aggressively uh, and Singapore, sorry, I forgot Singapore uh, becomes very aggressive. So either they say, you know, um, what are you saying, you know, developing countries, even we give you this waiver, they, they give you, but, you know, forget about uh, actually WTO is a governor body that every country are equal. But the mentality is that even we allow you to get this waiver, you don't have any capacity. You only have one country in uh, one company in Africa. This is one of the communication we heard in one, one meeting. One country said, according to some information, they said in Africa, there's only one company can produce medicine. So what's the point of having a waiver? And then um, we heard a lot of uh, very powerful response from South Africa and others and say, you know, uh, dear blockers, you are wrong because, you know, you need to update your knowledge. We have a lot of, uh, you know, we, we don't have huge, huge, huge capacity, but we do have capacity in Africa. Our company are producing medicines and then certificate company are now doing some production for COVID uh, vaccines. So when, you know, the company say, oh, vaccines are so complex, only us know how to do. But to the country, they are capacity in developing country, in Africa, in, in Asia, in Latin America, and developing country manufacturers are uh, producing a lot of, uh, you know, pre-qualified medicine that's supplying the, the W, you know, for the international, um, uh, procurement agencies. So that this, this is a mentality going on uh, with this small group of country, uh, yeah. who are rigorously blocking the process. Thank you, Yuan. So yes, that's, that's absolutely paternalistic. Um, and I think many here would people that it's also feeling quite neo-colonial. Um, and that, you know, the fact that South Africa led this um, proposal at the start is good. And just to give um, many of you um, a little bit of insight, when South Africa co-sponsored in October the TRIPS waiver with India, um, subsequently a number of other countries have come on board in support. So originally we saw co-sponsors from Eswatini, Mozambique and Kenya. And then later, uh, as things went along, we've recently seen the African Union come out and support the union, uh, the proposal waiver. And recently as well, the Africa group and the least developed uh, countries group at the WTO have also come out and said that. So that sends a really strong political message. On that note, I'm going to bring in you, Omanyana. I know we're going to go shortly to, to look at the domestic law, but just your, just your sort of feelings here as being a South African who specializes in public health hearing these countries use the kind of arguments they do that we don't have manufacturing capacity, um, particularly as well that the countries that are blocking the wave are the same countries that are hoarding these vaccines, countries like Canada. I'm just interested to hear as a public health specialist um, a little bit of your response to these kind of remarks. Yeah, look, these are very powerful voices in the in the global sphere. So you have these pharmaceutical companies that are essentially saying to governments that they are not willing to even have a conversation. Um, and yet they are swaying the conversation that's happening at the WTO. The countries like Canada and the US are constantly lobbied by big pharma. Um, and even in, in 2014 with Pharmagate, there was clearly a huge lobby that is well established in the U.S. that was aiming to undermine the work that South Africa was doing to amend its laws. 
we're really in a position, and the South African representatives in Geneva said that this is this is leading to vaccine apartheid. Um, and we, we, you know, it's, it strikes home when you say something like that, because essentially you have rich white people in the, in the US and, and Europe getting vaccines, whilst the rest of the world, the global South, black and brown people are getting trickles of vaccines. They're getting handfuls of vaccines. Um, either through, you know, not yet through the charity that was promised by Boris Johnson and, and Macron from France, but through COVAX, which actually is supported by the South African government. Now, COVAX is meant to be a pooling mechanism. This was one of the, the key solidarity mechanisms um, that the WHO pushed when COVID struck to say, Let's um, come together as a global community. We know this is a global pandemic and we need a solution for the globe rather than individual countries. So we actually, as South Africa, put a lot of effort into COVAX. Uh, we are co-chair on the COVAX committee. We have put lots of resources in terms of how to develop that program with Gavi, which is the, the vaccines body, um, the global vaccines body. Um, because we said that we were going to do this the right way, which was with solidarity with the rest of the world. Um, so whilst COVAX is sitting underfunded um, and we're being told, oh, no, you'll get your vaccines through COVAX. What happened then was those other countries that Yuan mentioned started to hoard vaccines. They started making deals with AstraZeneca and Moderna and Pfizer for all of the vaccines that they could possibly produce. Um, so what we have is a, a shortage of vaccines, not because of anything, but because the, these companies have decided they would rather have less stock. They can make deals in, in the UK and the EU and in the US and Canada and forget the rest of the world. They, they actually don't care. They actually don't care. So where we are now is that a few, a handful of countries like Rwanda and Ghana have received very small numbers, not even a million uh, vaccines for their health workers um, in, in African countries. And we're supposed to be grateful for that. But that really is such a colonial mentality. What we're saying is that there's a legal framework in the WTO that we have all agreed to as countries that allows for a pooling of resources, a pooling of procurement mechanisms, and a procurement, uh, a, a pooling of know-how and technology. And that is called CTAP. So that's another solidarity mechanism uh, where we said that we were going to ask these, ask the pharmaceutical companies to put their technology into this pool so that we could increase manufacturing. Um, and has and that so happened, Omanyana? Um, this is the question I guess happened. many people are asking. Not a single pharma company has decided to share their know-how to ensure that manufacturing can happen. So actually there's a shortage, but we have manufacturing capacity. The real issue is there's a lack of sharing of that information. And the critical thing is that these companies, the, the, the model for their profit making is to ensure that they do not share the know-how. 
um, and they do not transfer technology. So they don't want to see that happen in a pandemic. And then the rest of the world looks and says, well, you actually still have a profit-making system, even though you have shared. Um, and to start to think about a new normal within the patent system. So they don't want that to happen, which is why they're fighting very hard against this IP waiver, because whilst it's exceptional for the COVID pandemic, there's a likelihood that we can see actually that the patent system, even in normal times, doesn't work to deliver medicine to people who need them. Thank you, Manana. And another point obviously related to this that many people will be familiar with is that one of the excuses that the same countries that are hoarding the vaccines and, and blocking the waiver is they love to hit back with the excuse that they have put so much money into research and development, you know, as if, you know, they then get to decide that they should have preferential access to these vaccines. Never mind the fact that South Africa, as yet one example, um, has been hugely involved in a number of trials, not just for AstraZeneca, but also for Johnson & Johnson. So those particular pharmaceutical companies are directly benefiting, not only from the studies, um, but, but they are actually profiting from the data that they get um, with regards to the variant, but also with regards to COVID generally. So when these countries come forward and say that that's something that personally um, I find particularly frustrating and many people in MSF and I guess across the movement here today would agree that that's really unacceptable and actually just a complete and utter misrepresentation of the reality on the ground. Perhaps related to that, um, before we get too bogged down and looking specifically and venting some of our frustration with pharmaceutical companies, I mean, on the one hand, I'm tempted a little bit to weigh into whether or not we have the capacity through BioVac and through Aspen here in South Africa. But I think before we get too involved in that part of the discussion, perhaps we should now turn and look a little bit exactly at what is happening in South Africa. So on the one hand, we have this TRIPS waiver discussion that's going on. And as I said earlier, there's a lot of goodwill towards South Africa for, for spearheading that. But then, Omanyana, would you say, looking at the massive delays that have happened on our domestic patent law reform, would you say in some ways that South Africa, would you go so far as to say that their approach has been schizophrenic or a little bit contradictory? So to push it at the international level, but to not ensure that we have the laws ready here, or is that a bit provocative and a little bit unfair? Provocative, but true, Kate. Um, it is true. We've been, you know, we fought for a policy document uh, for uh, almost 10 years. Um, once we had a policy document, there was an understanding that the bills, the, the law reform bills would follow in due course. Now, it's been two years since that happened. In fact, almost exactly two years since it was around March 20, 2018 um, that cabinet approved that policy. So we are sitting behind um, and the delays, as you know, are partly uh, technical, but also partly political. And that's why, you know, we started a petition and we wrote open letters to the presidency to say that this law reform has to happen now. We can see what is happening on the global stage. Let's at least prepare our own legal framework. Um, indeed, if there is a TRIPS waiver, that waiver doesn't simply, by a signature, waive all IP. The work has to be done in each country. So South Africa would still have to do that work. And you would want to do that work where you have already done the reforms 
that are aimed at balancing public health and, and private rights on intellectual property. So you want, you actually, we need that um, urgency, but it's partly the political will that we need to see. And that's what makes things happen. And that's why we're marching next week, because we need some movement from the political heads. We know, for example, that the, the drafts have been completed. There are various levels of sign-offs that have to happen. Um, but we feel that, you know, this is the push. This is the moment to push to make this happen. Thank you so much. And Yuan, just to go back to the TRIPS level for a minute, um, or the TRIPS sort of, I would say, high level engagement, what exactly are we expecting to see happen in the next few days? I think there's been quite a lot of confusion in the public here about are we expecting a vote? Um, are we are we going to see a commitment to a negotiation? Where are we and how much information are you able to share, bearing in mind that what is happening in the WTO for the people joining us today, a lot of the work is not very transparent. So to be able to get information on what is happening and, and, and you know, where things are going is not always so easy. That, that's a that's very challenging question for us to anticipate. But I mean, just to follow what Rumiana said, yes, the national level of work needs to be done. So that's actually... The, multiple steps we are still waiting for the waiver negotiation itself because of this small group of country who are doing whatever they want to delay um the formal negotiation hasn't stopped formal negotiation because we know you know normally country would negotiate ne negotiate a tax and they will say okay i don't like this paragraph i change language and so on then you get the real work going and say okay this is a kind of final tax we agree and then allow country to do that. They haven't reached that stage because of this small group country are keep talking about other things. Um, so this week, the critical uh, breakthrough we are anticipating is country really start agreeing on the formal negotiation so they can look at the text of the waiver proposal, maybe revise it into a document they all think are fine, and then let it go. Because legally speaking, um, at the WTO level, what does that waiver mean? For instance, if we get a waiver today, what happened tomorrow? And tomorrow, you know, tomorrow we, we still don't have 10 billion doses of vaccine. We can't make that magic. What the waiver do is that from tomorrow, country who choose to use a waiver will not be sued by other countries because for the moment as we said the w um the trips agreement says you can't uh choose not to give patent on on medicine and if you are given uh this and you you cannot discriminate which type of so i see a colleague ask how about hiv tb and cancer so the waiver now we think that it's actually very specific and narrow it's only for COVID. So in the situation of a global emergency, it should have been quite easy for country to agree, right? It's a specific, it's temporary. It doesn't affect the cancer and so on because under the WTO rule, country cannot do this differentiation. If they do that, they will be sued. So for COVID, if they, we get the waiver, they can move around. At the national level, as Mumiana said, we still need to finish the longer term law reform process. And also as an emergency, Country can use executive power, say, I'm going to implement this river for COVID period of time, for COVID medical product. As long as they do this, 
meaning that they don't need to worry about companies. They can just start framing their collaboration. Maybe that could be South-South collaboration. Developing countries can help each other without worrying about legal risk. That is our hope. But unless this small group country move, move away, because they can choose not to use the waiver, it's not obligation for them. If they keep standing in the way, we will not get that. So the problem now is really done. Um, and uh, the voting, yes, I kind of replied in, in the chat. The voting in theory is possible under WTO law. We need the three third, uh, three fourths of majority, meaning 124 WTO member has to agree. But this mechanism has been only used once in WTO history and the country are still trying to build a consensus. Uh, so for the moment, we haven't seen the signal of uh, going for voting yet. Okay, thank you. And of those 124, we have a question that's also been coming through here. How many op opponents to the proposal are there currently? So bearing in mind the numbers we know, and of course, just to be clear with everyone, there is a slight distinction between being a co-sponsor uh, and a supporter. But just in terms of if they were to go to a vote, hypothetically, like you say, consensus is ideal, agreeing in theory to a negotiation and committing to the wording and the phrasing of that or the text-based negotiation is important. But if it were to go to a vote, how would things stand? That is, that is part of the first question. And then that links nicely into the second question we have from Nsiki Poulos, who says, is there actually any hope for the waiver? I still feel hopeful, uh, although you know this small group of countries are trying to. I still feel hopeful, uh, especially we see the increasing solidarity of developing countries. You know, the the waiver was proposed by South Africa and India, as Umiyana said. South Africa actually have been do, doing a lot in terms of solidarity in this pandemic. This is actually another gesture of global solidarity, recognizing all type of government will potentially be held ransom by big pharma so that this could provide an option for different type of government to use, right? So they didn't differentiate developing, developed, recognizing the global pandemic. For the moment, actually, if we watch from far what happened in Europe, European Union has a problem. UK is, they are fighting, you know, for vaccines. Canada has a problem because they didn't get any deals with, uh, with big pharma to produce vaccine locally. They are not allowed because companies don't give them. But those countries' government don't want to recognize that problem. So now the discussion turned into a normal, you know, when I say the colonial mentality, the struggle between developed and developing world. Although South Africa was proposing a solidarity deal, and then the rich country turned this into something else. So therefore, the hope is really, for me, is lies into the increasing unity and solidarity of developing countries, because we do have capacity, not in single country, but in many developing countries. And then um, how much we can flip over the smoke would uh, still be uncertain. And But we know we have a lot of solidarity in, in some civil society movement in those countries, colleagues in those countries are fighting and lobbying their government, pushing them to change positions. So I, I'm still hopeful, but it's a still not very sure. Thank you. Omanyana, I'm going to come to you with the question, but just one, one more while I've got you, on The one that I think confused a lot of people, um, particularly in this part of the world, is Brazil. So putting aside maybe uh, the the 
people's issues with the, the current uh, president at the moment, doesn't it feel like a complete outlier that they are blocking the waiver? I think a lot of people are struggling to get their head around that. So you've got South Africa, you've got India, their fellow BRICS partners coming out strongly and saying, you know, let's have solidarity, let's support that. And then Brazil says, no, we'll join the rest of the team. How can we get our heads around that? We were surprised and not surprised at the same time. I mean, not surprised because, Kate, you said that they have a quite tricky domestic political situation now. So maybe the instruction they are getting in Geneva from uh, capital was somehow difficult to 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 say. Um, but not surprised in, in a sense that... Um, Oh, sorry, not surprised because of domestic political instruction they are giving to Geneva. But surprised in a sense that, yes, uh, Brazil is a traditional ally to, to the, to South Africa, India, and they have been, you know, one of the champions in safeguarding access to medicines for quite a long time, using trace activities, you know, uh, asking for more balance, uh, between IP and access to medicines. So, I think they have been probably a bit surprising in that sense, a little bit um, breaking from from the team. But uh, that's maybe also a self-lining because <laughs> in the, in a recent uh, trips sessions, Brazil hasn't been spoken for a long time, and 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 for for quite a few months they didn't make any statements. Now uh, in the trips council. Um, we recognize actually domestically they are struggling. So we do hope they realize actually the waiver can help Brazil because Brazil does have capacity and they also got limited, limited because of the vaccine manufacturer deal they signed with AstraZeneca only allow them to do a little bit. And then there's no sustainability there. And they were been talking, they've been talking with, uh, they've been talking with in India for help, uh, for vaccine supply. As many other countries, so hopefully, uh, you know, they would realize and the government realize actually the waiver is helping them. Not only uh, like South Africa and India can do something, but many countries can do this. Great answer. I'm going to come back to you with a few questions as well, but Omanyana, just quickly to to hit back to you. I know you had some slides on the back burner as well. So first of all, just to ask if you if you do still want to just give me a thumbs up if you want some time to to show those or a thumbs down. Um, you could just let me know, and then I have another question for you in the meantime. Um, if, I if think you... we've covered we've covered most of what's in the slides. So okay, just... thank you. Thanks, everyone. This is a little bit the nature of the the fluidity of the conversation and the fact that we're all in different spaces. So thank you as well, um, panelists, for also just bearing with the nature of the way of this conversation has panned out. Omanyana, if you got a chance now um, to send a message to the countries that are blocking the waiver speaking as a South African, speaking as a public health specialist and a lawyer, um, but also speaking perhaps as a South African who might only get your vaccine quite far down the line. What would your message be to them today if you had a chance to give them a couple of sentences? So I think to, you know, speaking to people who are citizens of those countries, who are fearful as we all are of covid who are, you know, scared for their parents and grandparents who may have suffered losses, you know, lost their family members and friends. The whole world is grieving. 
you know we we understand that and there's there's a collective trauma that at some you know we're going to have to deal with at some point um from a mental health perspective um but you know saying to those people that as well they are part of a global community um and that you know putting pressure on their own governments to think about the solidarity uh mechanisms that they can participate in is a good thing because you actually need to deal with this from a global point of view those very people will want to travel they'll want to go to different countries um and yes you may have your passport as as they now have in Israel having um vaccinated the majority of their population but where are they going to go because you know there's the thing about this vaccine and and we've done you know vaccine uh, literacy um it doesn't necessarily the vaccination itself first of all we don't know how long it's going to last so we may need to get an annual vaccine we don't know yet but also being vaccinated doesn't necessarily stop you from transmitting the virus so it it stops you from getting sick and being hospitalized and so on um but there is a possibility that you could um infect another person so that travel that you're going to do is going to affect other people so i think people need to understand in these various different countries that there is a kind of personal uh survival <laughs> um perspective that they have but that really what they can do is ask their own governments to stop opposing what other governments are trying to do simply to increase manufacturing capacity because that's we just need more vaccines um and to deal with this as a public health emergency a global crisis um and that charity is not a response um that can sustain and respond effectively right so beyond charity you know even if there is charity beyond charity what can those governments do and to demand a level of accountability from their own government including the US where Joe Biden I see somebody's talking about Joe Biden um during his campaign said that they shouldn't be patted on covid medicines and vaccines and yet he, his delegation continued to oppose the waiver um and has done very little to demand accountability from companies like Moderna um which is producing a vaccine um and was 99% funded by public funds in the united so there's a level of accountability that can happen there 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 are disclosures that moderna had to do that they didn't do initially in terms of their legal framework because they were trying to hide the fact that it was a publicly funded vaccine um so the the us government has an opportunity there and with the other kind of investments that they've made in other vaccines to ensure that the blocking of manufacturing around the world um is stopped and that people around the world are able to act thank you there was one other question i wanted to ask you quickly before we go back to you on and a couple of other questions we have related to what's happening internationally um omanyana just particularly considering that a lot of the people that are joining us today are people who have been involved working with the TAC um south africans generally are well versed in all things to do with um hiv and tuberculosis i just wondered if we could perhaps just have a quick minute to look at a positive side of where we've had some some activism 
around other drugs, for example, with bedaquiline and TB, where we've seen actually that taking action can work against big pharma. And perhaps you'd just be willing to elaborate a little bit on that, um, because I, I think there's some lessons learned there, even though this was a very specific example and it wasn't pandemic wide, we have seen positive results before. Yes, we've seen positive results on particular drugs in relation to HIV and TB. But I would say as well that the fact that we have a cabinet approved policy that attempts to make this balance between public health and advanced public health and understand the developmental position that South Africa is and thinking about things like local production that's in this policy as well um, or will be in the second phase of the policy to you know to to look at investing in um, a system that would enable us to extricate ourselves to some extent from the global shenanigans. So I think that that is a victory in itself. Um, obviously we need to get to the bills, which is why we're marching next week. Um, but this is, this has been a hard won fight and we should, you know, take that win. Um, and the reason why we actually started that campaign to, to, um, change our law and ensure that we are able to use the TRIPS flexibilities that we've talked about is because we couldn't keep going drug by drug. We couldn't say, now we need this ARV. Now we need that ARV. Let's have this fight. Let's go to the competition commission. Let's go to the constitutional court. Um, let's, you know, go march at Johnson and Johnson to try and get lower prices for bedaquilin. For, for the treatment of drug-resistant TB. Now, you know, we're exhausted from that. We, we've done a lot of that. Um, and we, it's interesting that we, we get that question, especially from watchers of this work and also from government to say, uh, government people to say, well, why don't you fight for this drug? And why don't you go to court on the COVID vaccines? And why don't you do this? And the reality is that as a, as a, a community of, of medicines activists, we have to fight the bigger fight. We have to use our limited resources to fight the bigger fight. Um, but at the same time, yes, bedaquiline is an important um, drug. Um, and interestingly, I, I think about the, the TB uh, medicines as an area that has not benefited from scientific research um, and innovation. Um, and that's primarily because TB is found mostly in the developing world. Um, the same thing with malaria. We have very old, quite ineffective drugs for malaria. Um, and as well, TB, it's taken 50 years for us to start to see new and exciting medicines. So again, this is a system where we rely on a profit-making model of pharmaceutical companies deciding um, what they're going to, you know, if, are they going to invest in more Viagra type uh, medicines because that makes a lot of money in the West? Um, are we going to, you know, convert our innovation to look at hair loss? Um, you know, those kinds of things. And those are lucrative areas. And one thing we should remember is that the pharmaceutical industry as a whole is an incredibly lucrative business. Many of these um, multinational companies have balance sheets and you know profits that are larger than the GDPs of some countries. So like the, 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 there's no incentive to make drugs for the poor. Um, you know, some pharma executives have even said, you know, we're not gonna make um, 
we're not interested in making drugs for the developing world. Um, initially, Moderna, as we understand it, said that they were not going to deal with South Africa in terms of COVID vaccine. Just, you know, we're not going to do that. So we've got to challenge the system, and that's what, what we're doing through this law reform drive, is to challenge that system, ensure that within the current framework that we have, we're not saying pansy WTO, we're saying within that framework, how do we ensure that we're able to push on these TRIPS flexibilities so that we're not just handing out patents, which is what we do now. We don't actually have a substantive examination. And that's one of the things in this policy that needs to be translated into new regulations to the Patents Act to ensure that not only are we looking to see substantively, is this an innovation that deserves a reward of 20 years or not? Um, and then also, we have we don't have provisions that limit additional patents. So what we call evergreening to say, um, you have one drug, you then make a different version of the drug, you get 20 years. You then make a tablet instead of an injection, you get 20 years. Um, or you kind of create a thicket of pat patents where you patent, you know, the molecule and the, the methodology and all of these things so that nobody can actually then say, oh, let's take that client and advance it and do something else. Like what was done with the Ebola uh, medicine uh, uh, remdesivir. So that, you know, there's, there's just no sharing. The, the kind of main mm -hmm. approach is to hoard information um, and be as untransparent as possible so that science doesn't actually benefit human beings. Um, and I will add as well that we, we have an international treaty, the International Covenant on Civil and, and uh, Socioeconomic Rights. Um, and that, that covenant, which we have signed onto it, South Africa and many countries have signed onto, um, says that scientific innovation should benefit people. Um, and that's the balance that has to be struck. Yes, you get a monopoly, but at the same time, you've got to benefit human beings. You've got to save lives. And so that's why we have to keep challenging um, the system. So just to take you back a little bit, Yuan, thank you so much, um, Omanyana, for that background. Looking again at what we're seeing happening with regards trips, some questions have come through specifically about China. Um, so in terms of from Leslie London, um, give me one second. How powerful is China in the WTO since it supports the waiver and it has an economic powerhouse and a huge economy? Is it strategically important? And then I guess we can go on there. So if we do see it as strategically important and if we accept that, um, why has China not necessarily become an official co-sponsor? So how are we seeing them um, fit into the bigger picture of what's happening um, in the TRIPS Council? Yeah, I uh, think I started doing <laughs> chat and, and here. But but yeah, I, I, I think it makes total sense. And China, from, from, our, from uh, what we know and uh, information, China has been supportive from the beginning, um, showing solidarity and also ask also kind of uh, acknowledge that relying on voluntary mechanisms is not enough. Composer license is important, but not sufficient. Um, but uh, I mean, from MSF side, I mean, from my side, basically the work engineer, we haven't really engaged uh, in-depth discussion with the, with the China side, China, in terms of do they, are they ready to go one step further from, you know, full supporter to sponsor? 
we haven't done that, but I think that makes full sense. If there, you know, any channel by any organization conveying that message, you know, go further because um, I think it's also economically and politically makes sense to strengthen the BRICS collaboration. There is some mechanism on uh, COVAX um, research development um, between BRICS governments. I think that makes full sense for this government coming together with some alignment. Thank you so much. We have one more question that I wanted to ask you, but just before we do that, before we lose some people at 12, if I could just call on Bayona, please, to just give um, our audience members here today um, a little bit of an update on what's going to be happening um, for the pickets and the action that's happening next week, Thursday. So over to you, please, Bayona, and then we'll come back to a few more questions. Morning, everyone. Thanks, Kate. Uh, thanks, Moyan, and thanks, Yuan, um, for the insightful and very informative session. Um, so the picket will happen next week, Thursday, on the 18th of March. Um, as we've all discussed here, you know, it's really important to kind of have the minister make some kind of progress on um, patent law reform, and that's what we'll be picketing for. So we've planned for 40 people to picket um, and... Um, we'll, we'll all arrive at the DTIC in Pretoria. The picket will, will arrive from 9, and then the picket will be from 10 to 12, and then we'll have until 1 to disperse. Um, because we've limited the numbers because of COVID, um, because of COVID regulations. Yeah, and we'd, uh, we'd applied for 40 people. Sorry, I'm reading, I'm reading the chat, but yeah, we'd applied, we'd applied for 40 people. Yeah, so if if you are planning to attend, you can attend through, you can either register your name with um, PHM or with TAC or with Section 27, um, and then we'll have a list of those names and transport will be organized in order to uh, bring people to the picket. Um, and then we'll provide T-shirts and um, placards as well. The marshals will provide um, direction about what how things will happen on the day. Hope that's clear. Thank you so much for that little update. I'm sure many of you are also looking forward to this. I mean, obviously, we need to be careful in the times of COVID to make sure that we social distancing. Um, we'll have some sanitizer. Everyone will obviously be wearing masks in line with the uh, legislation here. But I think it's been a while since people have had a chance to do that, um, and particularly now that we've seen the second wave uh, get a little quieter. Um, a good time for a little bit of action to happen. So looking forward to seeing many of you um, on Thursday. I finally had a chance to have a look at the chat and I see that you've started answering Dale's question, but perhaps I could just refer back to that um, just for the benefit of everyone who's listening in and not necessarily reading. So this is something Omanyana, of course, touched on as well as she was, she was giving us her update, um, but I'm going to read that for you now. So from Dale McKinley, U.S. President, Joe Biden's administration is being asked by Big Pharma to punish Hungary, Colombia, Chile, and other countries with sanctions for seeking to ramp up the production of COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics without express permission from pharmaceutical companies. What is, if any, the emerging response to these moves, which represent another line of attack by Big Pharma against equitable and just vaccine production and distribution? Yeah, I answered uh, quickly in the chat. Exactly, because uh, comrade probably know there is this annual report from U.S. Court Special 301 report. It's been going over, going around for over the decade. 
So it's basically a report issued by U.S. trade representative to um, represent how U.S. industry consider other countries' IP and trade practice. That is whether it's good for U.S. business or not good for U.S. business. So they have been the big industry, um, big pharma has been using this report as a kind of revenue to criticize a developing country who are using legal tool to protect the health. So the, the countries listed there, you know, Hungary, Hungary issued a compulsory license on remdesivir like Russia. So Hungary, actually the full list of countries criticized by Big Pharma now to, to Biden, uh, they asked the Biden administration to uh, kind of sanction them, include Hungary and Russia who use a compulsory license on COVID med medicine. Colombia, uh, is because they had some discussion on, on the on discussion only Chile because they had some discussion and then also interesting European Union. So they, the big pharma said European Union, you shouldn't been doing this because European Union, they had a new uh, IP action plan saying that we need to use compulsory license for access medicine. So they didn't even do anything. So the big pharma said European Union, bad guy. So that and South Africa, India also bad guy because they did you did this trips waiver. So anyone who was attempting to protect health by using trips flexibility and others will be labeled by the big pharma as bad guy and asking USTR to name and shame them. So this is the annual bully uh, we have been following over decades. So, so for the moment, we know there's a couple of US uh, colleagues are pushing back this move. Uh, but also it's, it's actually shows, you know, for a country like EU and they've been named now and they should realize it, it's actually, this is solidarity for them as well. But of course, we don't know if they will realize that. Um, so it shows that it, it could potentially be a kind of a pressure, but there's also hope because there's some new dynamic in, in US in terms of civil society. Uh, just, um, I think one uh, more than a week ago, the there are 400, 400 civil society organization in US working on different issues. They they rarely come together at once, but they work on different issues on health, the trade union, human rights, environment, different issue. Come together, also send a letter to Biden administration asking US to change the position, support the waiver, support and you know, realize solidarity, support developing country. So we are not alone. So hopefully that, that movement could strengthen our our ask as well. It is shocking. And, and, you know, the fact that they are the ones referring to anyone even having these discussions as the bad guys. I mean, this, this, this links into a bigger discussion, I guess, about transparency. And even here in South Africa, we'll see at the end of press conferences when Minister Mkise, the Department of Health Minister, is speaking about vaccine rollouts and the plans that are happening, then, you know, there's a lot of discussion around, oh, well, I can't answer that because we're protected by non-disclosure agreements. And I think that there's a very important conversation that needs to happen here, and it's happened elsewhere, and, you know, other webinars, uh, one that, that Dale uh, hosted for Ulrich recently, we've had these kind of conversations about the fact that actually it's unacceptable to clamp down on freedom of speech generally, but also specifically in information that is in the public interest that has been publicly funded, where citizens of those countries have participated in trials and where lives are literally on the line. 
So there's a lot of different discussions that are happening in and around this that go way beyond, uh, you know, specifically looking at, you know, at what's happening at the TRIPS waiver right now. Um, this really kind of oozes into every level of society and, and a number of different debates um, that are happening while the pandemic rages on. Um, so we are going to wrap up very soon and I'll, I'll give you both a chance to have closing remarks. Um, but we just have um, from a fellow um, Fix the Patent Laws uh, Coalition group, we have a uh, Leslie again from the parliamentary um, or PHM. PHM South Africa, this is a comment, um, but perhaps there'll be a chance for a little bit of reflection at the end. Oh, and I see there's partly a question here. PHM South Africa is also going to bat away at Norway. Um, they have, we basically, Leslie saying PHM has supported um, the Norwegian People's Aid and has been working with Norwegian civil society to, pr to press the Norwegian foreign minister. Are there other countries amongst the blockers we can strategically target? Canada, with its grand pretense of being committed to human rights around the world, would a shame would shame move the Canadian government? So again, and Omiyana, please feel free to jump in as well as someone who's well versed in activism uh, and tactics. Any other suggestions that we can have here from you or you on about anything that can be happening within other countries, but also remembering um, that many of you were involved here in having those pickets outside various embassies in South Africa and various open letters that were being shared. You know, what sorts of actions can we look at? Um, maybe I will just jump in and say that one of the things that we have is a petition. Um, and, and maybe Julia can share the petition link on the chat. Um, and the petition essentially says, sign on from wherever you are in the world, from South Africa and from wherever you are in the world, to support the South African government in the fight for the IP waiver. And in addition, we also say, can you pressure the Minister of uh, Trade and Industry and Competition to make sure that the domestic law is reformed as a matter of urgency. So there's a petition going around. If there are organizations that haven't signed on to the civil society letter that was circulating last year in support of the IP waiver, there's still an opportunity to, to put your name down as one of the civil society groups that supports the IP waiver. Um, and indeed, uh, coming to March, um, to, to Pretoria next week, um, to show solidarity amongst different, um, organizations concerned about access to vaccines and access to, uh, medicines in general in South Africa to place political pressure on the minister, uh, Minister Patel to, um, to actually ensure that this, the bills are published. Um, and obviously the process would be that they're published for public comment. Um, we would then have an opportunity to, to make submissions and ensure that the, the bill itself is constitutional um, and is in line with Section 27 of the Constitution, which guarantees the right to access healthcare services. Um, and then it would go to Parliament where we would have another chance to engage parliamentarians. Um, to, to make sure that that bill actually addresses in the best way possible, having regard to the developmental state, et cetera, um, to ensure that we have access to medicines. So there are a number of things that we can do, and I, I encourage people to um, continue to reach out to us at Section 27 and to others, MSF, uh, PHM, um, to find out other ways. I think that, you know, I've, I've had conversations as well with 
activists in different countries and, and have given the perspective that we have as an African country, um, you know, to their journalists so that in the press, um, there is actually a perspective outside of that country, you know, and languages I don't speak like Spanish and Norwegian, etc. Um, but, you know, finding ways to, to find support within around the world with activists around the world and as well we support other countries in their own struggles thank you manana and then as well just to let all of you know as well that from doctors without borders point of view as well um we've obviously been pushing a lot of this on our twitter handle so please check us out on msf access um you can also keep an eye on the map that we have that is uh strategically color coordinated so that you can see that the countries who are blocking um, they still have a little red mark next to their name and those in support have green um, and there also are a number of other ventures going on msf's international president has recently released an open letter specifically targeting those countries um, that are blocking the waiver there are a number of other actions going on around the world um, you know that are not just limited to health activists um, we all know that in these new crazy times we live in, social media is still a very powerful tool as well. So please don't hesitate, all of you who are joining us today, to take to Twitter, Facebook, um, do what you need to do to get the conversation going and to keep up the pressure, um, both domestically and internationally. And I think on that note, perhaps we could just have some final remarks from Manana and Yuan um, to finish up today's conversation. Um, so final remarks from you, Yuan. What would you like to see happening um, in the coming days and weeks with regards to the TRIPS waiver specifically? What would be an ideal scenario for you from MSF's point of view? Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, the opportunity and exchange with comrades. So from MSF perspective for the waiver negotiation, we really hope uh, all of what we have been saying now uh, after one year could really wake up the government. And so they can, um, at the Chiefs Council level, agree on the starting for the formal negotiation so that the text could be reviewed concluded and we close this chapter giving country uh, additional legal tool and then go back to the real work of controlling this pandemic with more production and supply so that would be the ideal scenario but on the other hand i think it's very very encouraging to see that this opens up the unfinished task especially as we say in, in south Africa, to finish off the, the patent law reform concretely because that's the pandemic shows how important for country to be ready as, uh, so that we, we would be less vulnerable in the next pandemic because law plays uh, either a blocking role or enabling role. So we hope, you know, the future law could enable uh, South Africa and other developing countries to have more capacity, more readiness, so we can be stronger in the next pandemic. Thank you, Yuan. And over to you, Omanyana. I mean, we have generally a constitution that many South Africans are incredibly proud of. Um, just picking up on what Yuan said, we generally have uh, an enabling legal environment. Um, we have seen massive delays on what's happening with this much needed reform. To end on a positive note, what kind of enabling legal environments would we like to see, perhaps with the patent law specifically? I mean, I know you've already alluded to the participation we'll need, but if you speaking today, again, were to able uh, to sort of end on a message of how you'd like that law to look, briefly speaking, 
how would it look? Yeah, um, so I think I would echo everything that Yuan said um, and to reiterate again that this is an opportunity. Um, the COVID crisis is devastating, but it's also an opportunity for us to get the political will to finish the work of decades long activism to ensure greater access to medicines. Um, and that, that law will look like what section 27 of the constitution, um, demands of our state and of our private sector, which is that people must have access in a meaningful way to affordable medicines. Um, and technically, you know, we can talk about uh, the technical aspects of patents and uh, whether or not we should have pre-opposition, uh, pre-grant opposition or post-grant opposition. We can get into all of that. But the, the, the critical thing is that all of those mechanisms have to be available to our government. Um, we know our government is wary of going to court against anybody, but in particular, we have a very litigious uh, health sector um, in South Africa, the pharma sector, as well as others. Um, and so we actually need to support our government. Um, and that's what this law reform does. It actually shores up uh, the, the institutions of the state to ensure that they are able to do the work of protecting public health. Um, and, you know, creating less and less space for intimidation and lobbying by a very powerful industry um, and, and giving them the tools to be able to, you know, whether it means granting a compulsory license um, or being able to do parallel importation, um, which is one of the, the things that we already have in our law, but the law reform in, should actually improve the way that that's done um, so that the government is actually able to take those steps to get cheaper generics from India or from China or from elsewhere in the world um, to address public health needs. And our public health needs are great. Um, besides HIV, we, you know, we have, you know, over 5 million people um, on treatment. Um, and also we are looking to, to, to new medicines. Um, so, you know, more pre, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, in particular for women, we're looking to see newer drugs, more effective drugs, drugs that are much better for women, for example, um, because we obviously have the, the whole issue around um, gender-based violence and complications around relationships and consent. So we want to put power into women's hands because young women in particular are, are facing the largest burden from HIV. Um, and are the most affected. So we need to be able to respond to our country's situation um, and the tools that are available in law reform should enable our government to do so and they are required to do so in terms of the constitution. Thank you very much to both of you. So just to, just to wrap up from my side as well, um, we're very grateful to those of you who made the time to join us today. We know it's not so easy with so much going on, particularly to join during a working day. We're looking forward to seeing many of you on Thursday. We also actively encourage you to carry on the conversation like we urged earlier on social media, um, within your organizations, you know, those of us who are available directly to chat, you know, please reach out and, um, and to remember that, you know, to sum up some fantastic messaging we've had from both Yuan and Omanyana that, 
this is not just about what is happening in the in the pandemic right now. So while the waiver is specifically referencing, we do need to go beyond this. But while we look at the immediate future, and while we look at the fact that we are hugely concerned about the number of lives that were lost in the second wave here at home, we really do hope that some change comes soon on both fronts, internationally and here at home, so that less lives are unnecessarily lost while we wait for a very limited supply of vaccines and other important life-saving tools. So thank you again to everyone. Um, this, um, just to let everyone know that there will be a podcast available of today's conversation. There will also be a recording of this link shared elsewhere. Um, thank you very much as well to the organizers, um, to Insiki, Bayane, Julia, various others who've got involved. Um, thank you very much. And as we said again, don't forget about what's happening next Thursday. Let's have a great attendance. Let's put on the pressure that's needed. We also um, wish you luck, you on going forward with a week where you'll be checking in and keeping touch um, and tracking very closely what's happening um, at the WTO. So thank you for joining us today from Geneva. For those of you who joined late, we did originally have Lena on the program, but she was unable to attend, which is why our policy specialist, Yuan, joined. Thank you very much as well, Omanyana, not just for your time today, but the incredible work that you do um, fighting for our constitutional rights. I think on behalf of everyone here, a huge debt of gratitude goes to you and the wonderful work you do. So thank you very, very much, everyone. And that's it from us.